from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. I am so glad you're here. Joining us in this conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, community, and society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. Visit totalleadership.org for information on what we offer, including now an audio course based on Total Leadership. It's called Four-Way Wins. You can find that on Himalaya.com. There are also courses on LinkedIn, on Coursera. You can find new episodes of this show premiering for one more week, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM Channel 132. After that, we're going to be moving to Mondays. More on that soon. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. My guest today is a former student who has built a highly successful career in the people side of operations, particularly in California tech companies, but elsewhere. After she founded her own company rooted in the idea of fair trade, we're going to hear about her remarkable story. She is just recently started a new job at a company that fights cybercrime, and I'm looking forward to learning more about that and to what she's been doing since she was in my class almost 20 years ago. Gianna Driver is Chief Human Resources Officer at Exabeam, E-X-A-B-E-A-M. Gianna, welcome back to Wharton. Thanks, Stu. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Let me just give a bit of background for our listeners before we jump into our conversation. Gianna manages the strategy and processes related to building, investing in, and retaining top talent at Exabeam, enabling employees to do their best work. Prior to Exabeam, she was the chief people officer at Bluevine, which is a private fintech company based in Redwood City, California. Before Bluevine, she led HR and people functions in high growth technology, gaming, consumer, and SaaS organizations, including Play Studios, Aristocrat, Actian Corporation, Talend, and Balsam Brands. She is, as I said, a distinguished and esteemed graduate of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, it's so great to be speaking with you. Gianna, um, when you were back at Wharton, um, what were you interested in? Mm. Oh, my goodness. Let me try to go back that many years. Um, you know, I, I was interested in management and entrepreneurship. Those were my concentrations. And what I wanted to do at the time was work with people in organizations and do something to, to better the world. That's something that's always been at, at the root of, of my calling, I think. Now, where does that come from? Because I, I know that you're your background is, well, everyone's different. We live in a, a remarkably uh, diverse world in which everyone has a, their own story. Tell us a bit about how you came to the Wharton School uh, and how that led to your uh, kind of purpose or mission-driven uh, ideals for your career. Yeah, well, so my, my journey to Wharton was pretty atypical. I uh, am the daughter of um, a Filipino-American woman and a a cattle rancher, Texan um, farmer. My mom was a mail-order bride from the Philippines. And um, through a really turbulent childhood, um, you know, I grew up in a women's shelter and saw a lot of a lot of pain around me. Mm-hmm. And it was always clear from from my mother that she came to America wanting a better life 
for her daughter. Um, she could have stayed in the Philippines um, herself, but she said, I wanted to have a family and I wanted to go to the land of opportunity, which is America. Mm-hmm. And you have to take advantage of everything that we have here. You have to go to school and do well and get an education. And it was that spirit from my mother that I think really started to imprint in me that there is a path out of poverty. There is a way to um, to, to rise above all of the, 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 there was a lot of pain and heartache when you grow up in a women's shelter, as you can imagine. And it was that perseverance and resiliency that my mother helped to instill that led me to Wharton. How did it lead you to the place where we met? Yeah, well, back almost 20 years ago, Uh, most of the classes that I took were your typical Wharton classes, right? So finance and um, micro, macro, econ management, all of those. But yours was a class, total leadership that called to me because you spoke about these things that were important, this whole idea and notion of having different spheres and aspects of your life integrating with one another. That felt so right to me. And it resonated with me in ways that are beyond what I may have communicated in class all those those years ago. Um, Because remember, this this came at a time when these buzzwords that we know today around you know, work-life harmony and all of that stuff, these were not buzzwords back then. This was not the cool thing to be doing 20-something years ago. This was very atypical. And your class spoke to me because it was a, a space for us to talk about these things um, and to not have shame in talking about how family is really important and community and mental and, and spiritual growth and development is, is important. These were not things that that were normal back then. Tell me about it. <laughs> I'm well aware of that for sure. And well, so how did that uh, affect you, that exploration uh, in terms of, you know, what, what you then did after? Yeah, well, your class in many ways gave me permission to dream and to dream in ways that I didn't feel as safe doing on my own, because as, as I'm sure you know, and as many of the listeners here may know too, Wharton is a conduit for Wall Street and um, a lot of wonderful, wonderful jobs there. That wasn't my calling. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something that would combine the Wharton education, but that also bettered humanity that helps a lot of women who were very similar to my mom. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of these reflections and thoughts that post Wharton um, led me to start my own social venture, working with women artisans in developing countries. So tell us about uh, Gianna Fairtrade. Yeah. So we worked with women in um, underrepresented and, and poor communities. So in the Philippines and in India and in Thailand and Laos. And what we did is crafted products that um, we then sold into organizations, boutiques, and uh, museum shops and places like that in the US. Mm-hmm. So you know, this was a beautiful combination of Implementing many of the skills I learned at Wharton, so creating business plans and you know P&Ls and marketing plans and all of that. Mm-hmm. But then also there was this human element, the things that I learned in the total leadership class. Hmm. So, well, um, h- how did that uh, unfold, the, the fair trade story? Um, what, what happened in that, in that period in, in terms of your own professional development, the impact that your organization had? and um, how it led you to where you are now. Yeah, well, so I did my business for a little over five years, and it was very fulfilling in the sense of um, working in these artisan communities and villages and helping to create leadership classes around how do you create scalable quality control systems and how do you help um, forecast and pr- project growth. I mean, all of these things, but doing them on literally chalkboards with dirt floors, barefoot, um, you know, in 
you know, the outskirts of Vientiane Laos or Andabad, India or Manila in the Philippines. Um, super, super exciting and fun. And then also working on the other side of that equation with the, the buyers in the U.S. and the museum and, you know, boutique owners and stuff to really help them understand how, um, you know, purchasing decisions have a lot to do with the, the macro economy and, and, and fair trade and empowering these artisan groups. Um, I realized this, I I love working with people. I love doing these, um, learning and development programs, working with organizations to help create joy and bring integration and happiness to, to fruition. So what ended up happening? You were also bringing a kind of power to the, those people, uh, who are the artisans in these, um, parts of the world where they wouldn't otherwise, um, have access to power. Do I have that right? Yes, very much so. And when I look at my mother's story as an example, mm-hmm. the reason she had to become a mail order bride was she didn't feel she had marketable skills. She didn't have a way to have a better life and support herself. And so for her, selling her body into a mail order bride program was the only alternative she felt she had. Mm-hmm. With the fair trade business, the idea was to work with women very much like my mom in their local communities and help them realize there is a path to financial independence. They don't have to stay in abusive situations or unhealthy dynamics with with partners, et cetera. They can support themselves and and their families. Uh, so let's go back. If I, uh, we're going to come back to what happened with with fair trade and how that led you to w- where you are now as a leader in people operations, uh, you know, recognized far and wide for your achievements in that space. Um, how did you get to Wharton then from those humble beginnings? <laughs> so I opened up U.S. News and World Report. Because I knew I wanted to go to, to to a business school and get a good business education so that I could help to a um, well, I wanted to make a lot of money to support my mom. Right. <laughs> right. So that, that was the goal, but then I also wanted to help people and I wanted to do that through a business Avenue. So I opened up us news and world report. The number one school was the Wharton school of business. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's where I'm going to go. So I applied and I sent one application out and said, I'm either going to go to number one or I'm going to travel the world and waitress and figure out life. Wharton accepted and it was early decision. So it was binding. (laughs) And lo and behold, that's where I went. So no waitressing. No waitressing. I've never been a waitress. <laughs> never been a waitress. Wow. Well, that's that's a part of your resume that'll probably remain unfilled. But let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. Today, I'm speaking with Gianna Driver, who's the Chief Human Resources Officer at Exabeam, which is a company that uses the latest technology to help its clients fight cybercrime. Um all right, so you you get to Wharton, you and you had gone to school where in, in Texas or yes, so yeah, so I I ended up skipping my last two years of high school in Texas and went to um, a place called the Texas Academy of Math and Science or TAMS for short, located at the University of North Texas. And at the time, I wanted to be a, a pediatric neurosurgeon. Um, you know, when I was fourteen, fifteen years old. Um, and started to take classes in um, biology and physics and, and pre-med types of classes and realized, wow, this isn't fulfilling and, and doesn't feel right for me. What is it that I want to do? And I would like to help people mm-hmm. and folks like my mom, et cetera. And so that was the impetus for thinking, okay, then I need to go to business school to learn how to be a more savvy business person. And then I looked at US News and World Report and there was Wharton. Amazing. Uh, so, um, you know, we could spend the whole time on this topic because it's so important for so many people to understand 
what it's like to come from, let's call it a non-traditional background and into an Ivy League, uh, you know, high-powered undergraduate institution. I wonder if we could just spend another minute on this before we get back to the later parts of your career and what you're doing now. Um, on, you know, what was it like for you to be a, a first-generation student here at that time? Uh, you know, since you've been here, there's so much more that we are doing that schools um, around the country are doing to help first generation students yeah. to um, to acclimate, to succeed. Um, I, I'm curious, what was it like for you? And especially what advice do you have for other people who um, maybe not in your, your situation exactly, but who were facing similar challenges as they are either raising children or know of kids who are coming into college and are thinking about coming into a new environment that's going to be really strange for them. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Stu, that was, that was like three questions wrapped up in one. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's not great. a good question. Take, take whichever part of it that you want to go with. Yeah. I'll, I'll take the first part first, which um, I think was around being a first generation college student. Um, what was that experience like? Mm-hmm. And I'll be candid and say it was really hard. Mm-hmm. going to a place where I felt like the other, I, I was very aware that I was not like everyone else there. So yeah, which one here doesn't fit with all the others? Yeah, that was me. Mm-hmm. Um, Wharton um, and, and Penn um, was a place where many of the folks came from privilege, mm-hmm. um, from private schools and boarding schools and had accolades 10 miles long and um, had had resources. I felt that they all came from worlds I couldn't relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, financially, there was a huge disparity because I didn't have the money to do the right. things and to go out and, and take shopping trips to New York and all We're going of the- to Barbados for the weekend, John. Will you join us? Well, I wish I could. (laughs) Um, So in many aspects, Wharton was hard socially for me. It was hard economically for me. Um, It was hard academically for me. It was the first time in my life that I was challenged in that way. And I didn't know how to ask for help because these were not skills and things that I had grown up learning. And in fact, I remember during my time at Wharton, one of my um, one of my counselors pulled me aside and, and asked for for feedback and um, and I told her I said I'm having a really hard time here mm-hmm. um, because I don't know how to fit in I don't know how to study I don't know how to do all these things and and you know if you're going to accept people like me you need to help us actually make it here because I don't know if I'm going to make it there were t- there were moments of self doubt for me at Wharton <clears throat> so um, I'm sure this informs your present work as a, as a chief human resources officer, particularly on issues of belonging and inclusion and diversity and equity. Uh, and we're going to get to that, I promise. Uh, but uh, l- let's just close this piece of the story with um, what you took from that experience that you could share now with people who, who would have an interest in, you know, what was the most important lesson you learned from that experience? There were multiple lessons um, in no particular order. What comes to me was understanding that you have advocates around you all the time. Now, advocates are advocates and allies are words that are in our common vernacular that weren't, you know, back back then um, in my consciousness. But I was able to form a community of of friends, peers, and also some professors who were there for me when I really needed that extra boost of of confidence and um, acted as mentors and guides for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second item that comes to my mind is finding your inner light and remembering that even though you don't fit in, even though you might be other there's a beauty in that. And there's a perspective and strength that comes with not being like everyone else. So um, as I, as I progressed throughout my, my career at Wharton, um, I started to lean into that and to realize, wow, I do have different opinions and perspectives because of the life experiences that I've had that are very dissimilar to others here. So really owning that story and finding that light and honoring that um, was something that I learned. 
that's what I remember about you these many years later in our class that, that uh, it didn't seem that you were, and this is, you know, through the haze of, you know, uh, of time, um, really uh, afraid of, you know, who you were and who you were becoming. And that uh, I think that was probably your senior year when you were in that class. So, so there was a lot that you learned and I'm sure that it does inform what you're doing now. Um, Let's, let's go back to where we were then. Uh, We're jumping back and forth here in the chronology, but um, I, the ideas are making sense to me and I hope they're making sense to you listeners. Um, what happened to fair trade? Uh, you said you were there for five years. You couldn't have been making a lot of money doing what you described uh, earlier as, as in terms of what the fair trade model was. So your aspiration to, you know, make a killing and, and set your mom up uh, was, was was probably not being fulfilled. Am I, am I correct in that inference? You're, I'm just guessing here, but you're exactly right. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And it was the combination of that plus also going back to total leadership and, and the four ways it was also honoring in me the desire to have a family that made me take a couple steps back and reflect and say, is this fair trade business at this moment something that fits into all of these other aspects of my life? Mm-hmm. And the answer that I ultimately came to was that, no, it doesn't make sense at this point in my life to do this mm-hmm. because I didn't feel that I could support the family and also have the time and energy to nurture a new, a new being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did decide to wind down the business and to go into more of the private sector into HR. So you had a child at that time? Well, it was a, a broken journey on um, having a child. So something that I think many people don't always talk about, but I'm, I'm happy to, to share because I do think people should feel open, embracing their humanity and talking about these life experiences. Um, I, had, I had miscarriages that led to eventually having my wonderful nine-year-old daughter, Abigail. And mm. I do look back and, and wonder if a contributing factor to that was just the the time and energy and stress of managing my own business and the travel and you know sure. all of that stuff. And so for for these reasons, I didn't feel it was the right time to continue to pursue my entrepreneurial endeavor. I had uh, experienced as a father um, my wife having two miscarriages before our first child was born. So I can relate to some extent as you know to what that what that feels like and and how it changes how you think about your priorities and and just the fragility and the miraculous fragility of of human life and how much it takes to uh, not only participate in creating it but uh, nurturing um, creating a safe environment for children to grow up in so so it was the miscarriage or miscarriages that that led you to think, okay, I, I can't keep up like this if I'm going to, if I'm going to have a family and that, that was important to you. Yes. So, all right. So, so that, so how did you close it down? Did you sell it? Like, what did you do with, uh, with fair so trade? It was a slow process of winding it down. So introducing the artisan groups to other companies that were doing similar types of things. They might not have been selling the same product lines, but having conversations and making introductions that, Oh, I've been working with these groups for five years and they're wonderful. And, you know, I'm um, trying to make sure that they could continue to have these sources of revenue coming into their village. And, and communities was really important. And then, so you pivoted into um, into a kind of a different world. How did you do that? Yeah, well, so in this process, I started to do consulting for a friend's business. And at the time, we were three people big, so not a very large organization. This was this was Balsam. And um, when you're when you're three people big, you're, you're not in HR. Everyone is a bit of a generalist doing everything. As that company grew, and I eventually, as I wound down my business, became you know full time on board, etc. And it was an easy transition to make in terms of going in house because I I was already doing a bit of it in conjunction um, you know with with my business. Um, what I started to realize as as Balsam grew was that. 
I naturally gravitated toward the things that A, I'd already done in my business and B, um, things that fall into this umbrella of HR. So things like hiring, performance management, mentorship programs, learning and development, all of these things. And quite frankly, these were many of the things that I also gravitated toward in my own business, working with the women artisans and mapping out processes, you know, et cetera. There is a mm-hmm. similar thread and vein sure. to all of this. And then I, I realized, oh, this is what's called HR at the time, or, you know, the people operations, or it has different, different names, but um, all in this aspect and realm of people and culture. Wow. So you kind of invented your own sense of what that uh, field was like for you um, based on the experiences that you had both growing up, uh, you know, as a non-traditional student uh, at, at Penn and Wharton, and then in, in the fair trade um, organization and, and all the different things that you had to do there and how important people were to that. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, now that we've got the background, we can get into how, how your remarkable experiences have informed uh, what you do as a chief HR person um, in, in a number of different companies and, and currently with Exabeam. So uh, let's, let's take a second here, um, but don't go away, folks. When we come back, I'll be continuing my conversation with Gianna Driver. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM. 132. Stay with us. We will be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. Really glad you're here. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program and founder of Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find ways of creating harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. It is possible, folks. Check out totalleadership.org to find out more. My guest today is an alum of my class at the Wharton School when it was just starting out about 20 years ago. It's Gianna Driver, who has gone on to a remarkable career Uh, As we've started to talk about in the first part of the show, she's now the Chief Human Resources Officer at Exabeam. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, You, uh, Gianna, are are now, as I just said, the Chief Human Resources Officer at Exabeam. Um, from from Balsam, that first job, the the startup with just a few people, you discovered that, oh, there's this thing called human resources or people operations. This is where I belong. Um, what happened then? A lot. <laughs> so I, I wanted to immerse myself fully into HR. So there was a bit of self-education um, through, through classes and seminars and things like that to really start to understand um, the the qualifications to become an HR executive or an HR professional. So I wanted to make sure that I was grounded in some of the the data there. And then thankfully, I worked at a really amazing organization with um, a a progressive forward-thinking CEO who allowed me the freedom to experiment and to dive into a lot of these culture-creating um, opportunities and experiences at the company. So we were able to do a lot of really amazing things. And looking back on the trajectory of my career, I am grateful for those experiences because they helped craft a lot of my ideals around people operations and, and the HR space in general. This is Balsam. Now you're yes. <laughs> so so um, where did you go next? So after that, I started into technology companies. So Balsam was a, an e-commerce type of company. So yes, technology, but a lot of um, consumer goods and, and high-end artificial Christmas trees and, and holiday decor. Um, then I started working for an organization called Talend in the, the B2B SaaS um, big data space. Mm-hmm. And that was where I was able to take many of the 
ideas that I had practiced and, and helped to implement at Balsam and make them a reality in a much more, for lack of a better way of saying it, a much more mature organization. Mm-hmm. Talent had been around for a little bit longer. Um, the average um, tenure of the employee was um, like multiple years. The average age of the employee was a much older population than yeah. Um, you know, where I had come from. So a very different environment. And it provided an opportunity to really evolve some of the HR practices and and tools that I started to to build. So you were continually growing. And that is a theme that's emerging in my grasp of your story, Joan. And that is constant growth and, you know, stretch uh, to new realms. Um, You know, we don't have time to tell the the story of of the the different firms that you've been um, engaged with this last decade or so. So let's fast forward to now. Yes. Um, what what do you do at Exabeam, and uh, what is it that you spend most of your time focusing on in in that role? So at Exabeam, I oversee all of our people and culture teams. So that's comprised of our talent team. So recruiting um, our HR business partner team, our total rewards team, um, there's learning and also facilities or, or workplaces. Um, in terms of how I spend my time, I work with the team and also our our leaders to intentionally craft culture and to create systems that help us have the culture that that we're trying to build. So our company is about eight years old. And um, to give you some specific examples around this, we're looking at um, our our annual merit process and trying to get a lot of... um, well, trying to get clarity around what is the right system for us? What do we want to reward and, um, and promote? What are also the behaviors and, and actions and things that we're not okay with? Um, we're working on becoming an even more diverse and inclusive workplace. That was a big part of the reason why I was hired. It's a lot of, of, things that I'm very passionate about, the diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging space. And what we're trying to do is is listen to what our employees have to say and then create systems and programs around that. So we have some some ERGs that are in formation right now, which the employee resource groups, Mm -hmm. we have some other diversity um, initiatives that we're that we're starting to create at the organization. I've been here for about three three months or so, so mm-hmm. some of these are just now starting to mm-hmm. you know get um, get lift. What what's the the strategic challenge that um, Exabeam faces that you and your group are you know most clearly positioned to try to address? Our diversity is an area where we want to do better. Mm-hmm. We're, we're okay in that regard, but we're not world-class. And the vision and goal is to become a world-class, diverse, inclusive organization. Why is that important for Exabeam specifically and for your industry generally? So the cybersecurity space is... Uh, a space with a lot of homogeneity. Um, there are lots of me- meaning. Let me let me let me clarify. Meaning, a lot of heterosexual white men. Um, mm-hmm. So very homogenous in that sense. No matter where you are in cybersecurity, of course there are folks like me, and there are you know there are diverse individuals. Mm-hmm. But we're trying to really lead that charge and be an example of an organization that is inclusive, um, that has folks who are different colors and creeds and backgrounds. Um, when you look at the data, the data overwhelmingly indicate that diverse organizations are higher producing and more productive than organizations that are less diverse. In fact, McKinsey came out with a study a couple of years ago that said organizations who are more diverse are 35% more innovative and, and have higher revenues than those who, that are less diverse. So that's sort of the business rationale for this, uh, this, this push 
to 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 be a, a more you know genuinely uh, diverse organization in terms of uh, well, you mentioned race and sex as as criteria for you know thinking about the demography of of Exabeam. Um, I I imagine that your own experience. You say you're passionate about this issue. Um, can you say more about how like what you bring? Uh, helps you to lead in that effort? Yes, I I bring a different perspective, right? I, I the the CEO recruited me and and wanted me to be a part of the organization because he is passionate about being more diverse. Um, yes, you're right. There is that business aspect of of diversity, mm-hmm. but. I also get really excited about creating workplaces where people feel valued and heard and like they belong. And I feel that part of what my greater purpose is in life is to help organizations create these psychologically safe spaces where employees can come and feel valued and know that they're contributing to the world Mm. and that they're wanted. Um, And I do believe that when we create spaces like that for humans, that they start to thrive. And then that touches on every other aspect and realm of their life. So for me, yes, there is the business component. And I do want to honor that and, and, and note that, but I get really excited about some of the more human elements here, creating a, a place where people feel that they truly belong and that this is part of their community. Yes, it's diverse. And we've got people from all different backgrounds and life experiences coming. We're doing some initiatives specifically to reach out to folks who come from backgrounds like me. So impoverished, underrepresented backgrounds. In fact, we have um, some, some interns who will be joining us this summer from some pretty remarkable um, backgrounds, war-torn countries and, and things like that. And I can imagine that when someone like you is uh, speaking to those p- potential recruits that, um, that you have a, a way of uh, connecting that um, makes it easy or easier for them to, uh, to present themselves in a way that is genuine, uh, authentic, you might say. You know, Stu, you're exactly right. And what resonates with me as I hear you say that is going back to Wharton. One of my biggest takeaways was it doesn't matter if you come from a background like mine or you come from a background of royalty because there there were individuals who were from that background or any flavor of in between. What I realized at Wharton, and this has been a nugget that I have taken with me all of these years is at our core, we are humans. We are all the same at our core. Yes. We might have different languages or religions or skin colors or clothes or all of these other external differences. But when you boil it down, the human experience is a lot more similar. Our our light shining within us is a lot more of the same than it is different. Um, And that's something that, yes, to to bring it back to what we were talking about at Exabeam, as I speak with folks throughout the organization, there is that connecting at a human level. doesn't matter if you're an individual contributor, recent college grad, you know, a IC um, or a, um, a middle manager or, you know, the CEO or, or board member, there is that element of connecting on a human to human basis and creating systems and frameworks so that people can connect as humans amongst themselves. That is a noble aspiration. And I'm sure your, your mother would be proud or is proud. I don't know. Is she, is she still with us? She is. Yes, she is. And um, Stu, what's so funny is um, you know, my, my mother um, was and, and until this day is um, a, a janitor, a, um, a housekeeper. And um, she, she knows that Wharton was a good school. She doesn't know what Ivy League is or like any of those things. And she knows that I do stuff in HR, but she doesn't fully grasp and comprehend um, 
the extent of what I do, but there is a purity and beauty in that, that I'm okay with. So she's proud of me, but, but she doesn't fully understand what I do. I think she thinks that I work for like a small mom and pop <laughs> company. And I, I help with, you know, some like hiring, <laughs> I think is what she thinks, but she's very proud. <laughs> wow. Wait. So where does she live, Gianna? She lives in Texas. She's still in Texas. Mm-hmm. And she's never like visited your office and wherever it is in some interesting part of California. Well, so remember for the last two, almost three years, we've not had a lot of. Oh, right. COVID. <laughs> right. 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 All right. So... Never mind. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio. So glad you're listening. It's Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Gianna Driver the chief human resources officer at Exameme. What, Gianna, is is the most difficult part of what you do in trying to create this um, this beautiful vision of a better world in which uh, each are um, uh, each of us is is sort of recognized and embraced for our humanity. That is a, a noble aspiration, uh, and. And, and of course, one that has you know, been through the ages, uh, a difficult one to try to realize in the world, in your world, what, what's the biggest challenge that you face in building these systems and um, cultural norms and values to, to really try to bring that idea uh, to fruition? The biggest challenge would be when you find individuals who either don't want or aren't able to join that that journey. So it could be that they are change averse, change resistant. Mm -hmm. It could be that they're actually happy with not being inclusive and, and not necessarily having this greater sense of belonging. Um, It could be for any number of reasons, but when you have individuals who are no longer appropriate for that journey, parting ways in, in, in a manner that is commensurate with our values Mm -hmm. is, is hard. And as an example, I, I think that when an organization parts ways with a company, there's a way to do that with kindness and grace so that that individual realizes it's not that something is, is wrong with them. It's that this is no longer something that, that, that works and that's okay. Um, and giving them the, the freedom and, and space to go find the right fit somewhere else, I think is a very human approach when we do find these instances and circumstances where someone is just not excited about the direction that we're headed. Yeah. It's always about fit is, is, is I have found a good way to think about that. Um, that very difficult challenge where um, it's, it's less about the individual or the organization, but about the match uh, no longer working um, or not working at all. Um, I'm curious to know how, um, you know, in this, in this tumultuous world, which becomes in some ways more frightening as well as, uh, just more amazing every day, uh, how you think about uh, employees as social actors beyond the the workplace and that connection between work and community for people in your organizations with respect to social activism and, you know, uh, the radical changes in our um, physical environment, our climate and, and how you know, that's, you know, an urgent need for everyone today. How, how does all that fit with what you do, what your company does? Mm -hmm. Well, we live in a world where there's a lot of activism around us, right? Because of whether it could be unrest happening and and wars happening, whether it's social um, unrest, political unrest, environmental destruction, devastation happening. And I do think that organizations have a responsibility to uphold uphold their values. 
I do also believe though, there is a fine line um, between enabling um, activism and standing up for, for, for values, but then also not getting too political or creating divisive lines in the sand. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like it's a, it's a very delicate balance and dance. And um, I, what, what I try to help organizations do and what I advise others in doing as well is to come back to our core beliefs. So is it that we, we value peace. We um, want to be great environmental stewards of our of our community. Things like this, and then creating programs and systems around that. Not taking a political stance one way or another, because I have found that can be very very divisive when sure. organizations do that. But I do think we have a responsibility to take a stance on what our values are. So, how do you do that dance, Gianna? What, what's what advice would you give to there? I know there are people listening right now who are thinking, yeah, that sounds great. How do you do that? So first of all, I, I would say, um, do you, re- do you remember those things you taught us in class about being authentic and having integrity and being creative and unafraid to experiment? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just double checking. Um, I, I would go back to some of those, um, some of those core, core practices. So in translation, right. In practice, I think it's being real and authentic with your employees. Um, and I'll, I'll use the example of returning to the workplace or returning to office, which is something that many organizations, um, are, are faced with. So being authentic and real and saying, look, folks, look, employees, we don't have all the right answers here. We're going to try something and we might have to pivot and shift. We're going to do the best that we know, but it might not be the right answer. We might have to then evolve and, and, and change. There could be new variants to, to COVID. There could be many things that we don't know, but we're going to try this. So I think approaching it from a place of authenticity, acting out of integrity, but then also experimenting and saying, okay, we're going to try this, but we might have to try something else if this doesn't work. That's exactly what I've been you know, saying in my advice to companies that I'm working with. Uh, you know, there's no one best way for any organization or person and uh, not every great idea turns out to be a great idea. Right. Uh, so, so small steps that so that are surrounded by data, uh, and 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 uh, you know valid discourse, conversation about what's actually happening, what's working, what's not, is uh, is a wise path. And it sounds like you're you're following that that kind of ideal, and that that makes that makes good sense to me. Um, we only have a couple more minutes here, Jana. Um, I hope you're going to come back soon because there's so many more things that I want to talk with you about. Um, but l- let's um, wind it down here and asking you if I can about how you now at your stage in life, what's most important for you as you think about the meaning of, of peace and harmony and uh, performance in terms of you know what matters most to you these days? Mm-hmm. Well, as a mother to a nine-year-old, um, she she helps catapult me into my priorities because I realize that I want to be a great role model for her. I would like to leave behind a world that is a safe and wonderful place for Abigail. Um, and yes, work work is very important to me, but my my family um, is is one of the most important centerpieces upon which I fit everything else in my life. Um, I I do um, think a lot about community and um, you know back to those people who are able to support us and be part of our tribe and then also you know support them when when they need it. Um, I'm an advocate of putting our own oxygen masks on before helping others. And so part of what enables me to, to be the best mom I can be and and professional and friend is also to um, focus on self-care. So whether that's meditating, working out, um, you know, spending time doing spiritual practices. So these are the things that, that ground me and that enable me to, to 
be my best self. And I will say it's an iterative process too, right? Like it's not a <laughs> once and like these things are in constant motion. Mm-hmm. And do you talk about what you do personally as part of uh, your work life and work relationships? I do very much so because I, I had this conversation recently with one of the folks on my team and she's a, she's a mother as well. And I told her that it's okay to think of integrating work and life. It's not about these mutually exclusive siloed work-life balance, because when I think of the word work-life balance, I think of that, um, I'm a Libra. So I think of that pendulum where the, the person is holding the, the two weights yes. like work and life, and you got to balance it. I think it's much more about um, the integration of that. And so, yes, I am someone who <laughs> speaks about my life outside of work at work because I'm a full person. I'm a full human. I can't mm-hmm. just be a partial human. Um, and I'm a human first and and an employee second. That's a perfect note for us to close. Uh, and indeed, it's it's sort of the core idea, the heart of uh, of what we explored together in my course uh, twenty years ago. Jenna, thank you so much for being my guest today. How can listeners find out more about well about what you're doing and about what Exabeam is up to these days? Yeah, so they can follow me on on LinkedIn. Gianna Driver, um, or check us out at exabeam.com. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Gianna. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Stu. Happy to be here. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, that's going to be on Thursday. And then we start on Mondays. Stay tuned for more information about that. If you have a question about something you heard on the show, you can just email me. It's Friedman at Wharton.upen.edu. I am on Twitter at Stu Friedman. And as you know, if you've been listening, um, we've been playing songs about home. That's our theme uh, this year is uh, what does home mean to you? And how does the idea of home play out in music that you love? Is it about a place of peace and uh, safety or refuge? Is it about romantic love? Is it about the odyssey of life and returning to home? Is it about the end coming home to the finale? What is it? Uh, Home has very many meetings. Today, we're going to be hearing a clip from a song. I was thinking what would be appropriate for uh, the show and my conversation with Gianna. And it's a piece. Uh, well, I hope you, I hope you see the connection here, Gianna. It's uh, it's called she's leaving home. The Beatles will hear that on the, on the way out. Um, thanks again for listening. Thanks Patty Hall for making it all happen as ever. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to work and life on business radio powered by the Wharton school, Sirius XM 132. She's